Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. This morning, we're going to continue our study in 1 Corinthians. I uh, hope you have your Bibles with you, at least on your phones or, you know, maybe the old-fashioned kind. And, um, and if you would, just turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We have made it through chapter 14. And, uh, and man, it's exciting as we near the end of 1 Corinthians, looking at, you know, going verse by verse through an entire book. Um, it's taken uh, practically a year now to get where we are, maybe a little over. I don't know. I haven't really counted all the Sundays, but it's been pretty awesome to, to walk through this together with you. I hope you've gained an understanding of 1 Corinthians that you didn't have before, but we've got more to go. We've got this wonderful chapter here. If you would stand with me as we read the Word of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures." and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that now you would open our eyes to the truth of Scripture, Lord, that we would just simply believe what you have said. I know that at times we hear things in the Word that, that go against the grain, that, that, that don't, it doesn't settle well uh, with us, Lord. And so today I just pray that as we see the truth proclaimed in Your Word, we would have the courage to align our lives and our thinking with what You have proclaimed, with what You have said is true. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. All the years that you have lived up until now, this very moment, these hours, the minutes, the seconds, every single one, they are all a gift. They're all a gift from the Lord. And each one, each second, each breath is a gift. And the Bible says that your time is allotted to you by our sovereign God. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn to a few different places today. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Job chapter 14. 
Job chapter 14. I don't ever want you to take my word for it. I want you to see in Scripture yourself what God's Word says. Job 14, verse 1. We're going to go through verse 5. I just want to prove to you what His Word says. Job 14, 1. Man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not stand. You also open your eyes on him and bring me into judgment with yourself. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, speaking about God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Speaking of the sovereignty of God and him knowing ahead of time how many days, how many months that you're allotted to live in this world. That's something as a believer you don't have to worry about. That's in God's hands. What an incredible peace. Now turn to Psalm 139, verse 16. Psalm 139, 16. Psalm 139, verse 16. Speaking of God, Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Our days have been written. Before we were ever born, the Lord knew exactly how many days we would live on this earth. That's an incredible piece. At least it is for me. I hope it is for you. But make no mistake, this life is your opening act for eternity. It's your opening act for eternity. And in their heart of hearts, every human being knows that there is something more beyond what we see here, what we know now in time and space. Every person who's ever drawn breath wonders what lies beyond their last breath. And truly, the saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, when the bullets are flying overhead, every single one of them are praying that they'll survive. They cry out to God. Every civilization and human history is pondered and prepared for their eventual end, what they knew to, would be their last days. The idea that we live and, the, and, and someday cease to exist just does not sit right with us, does it? We cry out for something more. We want an answer to the unknown at the end of our life. We find the ancient Egyptians believed their dead had to face a dangerous underworld journey and a judgment before they gained access into their idea of heaven. The ancient Greeks placed a coin inside the mouth of their dead as payment for this ferryman that would carry their spirits across this river called Styx into the underworld. More modern Native Americans would often bury their fallen warriors with their bow and their arrows and sometimes even their horse in order to aid them in what they called the happy hunting grounds. All of these scenarios stem from the root of civilization, which we've studied. It's Babylon. It all goes back to Babylon. Every pagan belief, every false narrative of the afterlife originates in the beginning when man disobeyed God and then he was scattered across the earth. I say again, the human soul knows there's something beyond this life because Yahweh has placed eternity in our hearts. At the very heart of these believers in Corinth, 
as well as the early church Christians, was the belief in their resurrection. It meant everything to them. So in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul pivots, and now his reproof, his instruction, uh, is turned towards these believers who were apparently confused concerning, well, not concerning Christ's resurrection. They believed in Christ's resurrection because he had appeared to so many of those eyewitnesses, but whether or not they themselves would be resurrected. And so some had begun uh, um, sharing this rumor, this idea that there was in fact no resurrection for believers. So in these first 11 verses, the Apostle Paul seeks to lay a foundation of evidence for these early Christians to settle this record once and for all. So look at me back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, look again at verse 1, and we're going to work our way through this passage. Paul begins, he points first to the testimony of the church as evidence, having received this life-changing gospel, and there was evidence in their life that the Lord had, in fact, changed them. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. He's saying, consider this. You've heard the good news, the gospel, and you received it. And because of it, you stand and you have your salvation. Because of it, you have courage to face the adversary. You have courage to face the trials of life and the threat of persecution. And then he adds this, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. Now, maybe at first glance, this would concern you. It does not teach, of course, that believers can lose their salvation. This is yet another warning for true or for believers, those who would call themselves believers, to elicit examination of whether or not yours is a genuine saving faith. Because there is the non-saving faith of someone who plays the part. They actually see God at work. They've benefited from the truth of Scripture in their life. You can read Hebrews 6 and read about that. But this is an intellectual faith. This is a cultural faith, perhaps caught up in, in the church culture and, and never really having known Christ, swept up in the moment faith, and thus not a regenerating, true, genuine, saving faith. So Paul is saying, if you receive the gospel, you are saved unless you engage in an intellectual faith or a cultural faith, somehow not the true faith. There are many who call him Lord, and yet we know Jesus said himself, he says, on that day, there will be many who said unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But if he has in fact opened their eyes to the truth, he knows them and they know him. God's word tells us his sheep will hear his voice and follow him. And the Bible also tells us that he will hold them in his hand and nothing can snatch them out of his hand. It's an incredible, incredible assurance. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 real quick. Just flip all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through 7 really quick. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 7. Paul is opening this letter 
with these remarks very similar to what we're reading here. 1 Corinthians 1, we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him in all word and all knowledge, even as the witness about Christ was confirmed in you. It was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift, eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking ahead to his return. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end. So if he has confirmed it in you, he confirms it to the end. Beyond reproach in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if genuine, the gospel is first confirmed in you, but not only that, but it's confirmed in you until the end. Not only that, but God is faithful. God is faithful because he called you into fellowship with his son. Do you see that there in that passage? It's interesting to note that in this modern day and hour when so many professing Christians doubt the validity of the word of God, Paul says the very deciding factor in a true conversion in saving faith is whether or not, quote, you hold fast to the word proclaimed to you as good news. These days, people flippantly say that Genesis is poetry and professing Christians assert that somehow we evolved and that creation took millions of years. And I say to you, hold fast to the word proclaimed to you as good news. In this day when traditional marriage is under assault and the lines of sexual identity are blurred and they cram it down your throat to accept some alternate reality of what God says is true, I say to you, hold fast to the word proclaimed to you as good news. In this day when the word is being twisted and millions are being deceived by false gospels, by mystic spirituality in the church, counterfeit works of the spirit, I say to you, hold fast to the word proclaimed to you as good news. When examining yourself and considering whether or not you are in the faith, one evidence stands out above the rest. Do you hold fast to the word that was proclaimed to you as good news? Do you hold fast to the word? Is it good news to you or do you struggle with it? Do you find yourself siding with the world, having those arguments in your own mind? It's very simple. Just believe God's word. Just believe God's word. Paul states here in no uncertain terms that the fact that the gospel went out to the nations, he's saying the fact to the church at Corinth, the fact that you gather here today in Corinth, the fact that even today millions of professing believers gather all across the world, some 2,000 years later, this is evidence that Christ's work was a powerful, lasting work. In fact, it's eternal. It's evident that what he said would come to pass in the transformed lives of his church, even greater works than his in the spreading of the gospel. He had a ministry of three and a half years and, and solely right there in the, the region of Galilee, 
95% of all his miracles and ministries took, uh, took place right around the Sea of Galilee. He only performed two miracles in Jerusalem itself. Everything else was around Galilee. And he's saying, my people, the apostles and those who follow, will spread the good news and have a ministry that goes on until I return. Not only that, but it's going to cover the entire world. Every people group will have an opportunity to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Greater works, greater works than his. He said it would happen after his own resurrection. And that single act, his resurrection, ignited a fire in the early church that has never been extinguished. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what did his disciples do? They fled. They ran away. It should have been Peter there by his side who picked up that cross and carried it to Calvary. But he was nowhere to be found. He denied Christ after spending three and a half years with him. So they had to call a stranger out of the crowd to, to carry his cross. That's the kind of men the disciples were after spending time with the Son of God for three and a half years. But what did they do when Christ was resurrected and he appeared to them and he, and, he, and he fed them fish, and he told them that he had a ministry set out before them. They saw the resurrected Christ, and they were willing to die for him, and they did. They died for him. You know, Buddha died, and his followers commemorate his death. Mohammed died, and his followers remember his death. Yet the church of the living God celebrates Christ's resurrection every Easter, of course, but more so every time we baptize a new believer, we're baptizing them into the body of Christ. We celebrate the death of the old man and the rebirth or resurrection of a new creation raised in the same way that Christ raised from the dead on that glorious Sunday morning. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in the newness of life. Every baptism celebrates his victory over death, and our coming resurrection. Because the promise is not just for the here and now. There's a time when your body and my body will be renewed and we will be as Christ was when he was resurrected in that glorified body. That is a promise that yet awaits you and I. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. Paul now moves on to a second line of evidence in the verse, uh, in verse 3 and 4. He says, the scriptures are evidence. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. God's word is true. It stated it would happen before it happened. Now, before we throw the Old Testament away as a relic of the past hitched to the law, let us consider that at the time of Paul's writing this, there actually was no New Testament. They couldn't hold the Bible in their hands. It wasn't complete, not even close. So Paul's very clearly talking about the entirety of the Old Testament and, of course, the additional new letters that he had delivered unto them. Paul knew that he was not the author. It wasn't he wasn't the one inspired to write this in his own uh, creative writing, okay? He merely delivered the scriptures to them as a faithful 
herald of God. He was a conduit. He was the water hose. And the, 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 the water or the electricity flowed through him. The inspiration flowed through him uh, just like water through a water hose. Have you ever drank out of a hose? Yeah, you know it's got that, kind of got that weird flavor in it. You know, kind of tastes like a little bit of rubber in there. Well, that's exactly what inspiration looks like. The water flows through, through the hose. Inspiration flows through these apostles and those who wrote the word of God and their personality and some of their traits and their grammar style and their language style. That's the taste of that rubber in the water. But yet the inspiration itself is from God himself, authored by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, remember he said at the end of the previous chapter, we just covered it a few weeks ago, if not last week, uh, if you flip a page there and look at chapter 14, verse 37, chapter 14, verse 37, he says, Paul writes, if anyone thinks, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. They're on the same level as the Old Testament. In addition, in the Old Testament, the prophetic shadows are everywhere concerning Christ's death and resurrection. If you read in Psalm 22, you see it describes the crucifixion in detail, as does Isaiah 53. Every sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament is a picture of Christ's death. The serpent lifted in the wilderness is a picture of Christ being lifted up between heaven and earth on that cross. As they look to Him, if you look to Him for salvation the same way they did, it's, it's a type and a shadow. Psalm 16.10 says, For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. And this, of course, is a prophecy that the Holy One of God, speaking of Christ, when He died, would not decay in the grave. That God the Father would keep His, soul, his Son, the Anointed One, from seeing decay in the grave. And, of course, He rose in three days. And the third day is even prophesied in what we often called types and shadows. If you've heard that said, that's what this means in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. So he's saying that, that the sign of Jonah was, was the fact that he would die and he would lay in the grave for three days. So thus far, we, the lasting church, are evidence the Old Testament prophecies are evidence, and the new authoritative apostolic writings are evidence as well. And of course, we have the completed Word of God today. We have that luxury, whereas the church throughout history back in that first century didn't have it, the entire Word, until the end, the close of that first century. Let's look at verses 5 through 7. The next evidence Paul puts forward are the eyewitness accounts those who saw the resurrected Christ. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So it's pretty interesting when you consider this. Paul uses the word appeared. He appeared to them. And I want you to consider something. His body, that word appeared, means his body was made visible or recognizable. But the interesting thing is, is no, no one recognized him right away. 
They didn't recognize him until he allowed them to recognize him. So we have the account of Mary Magdalene in the garden, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and the disciples on the night of the resurrection. None of them actually knew Jesus until he manifested himself in such a way that they recognized him as Jesus. He allowed them to see him. In addition, folks, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but we have no evidence that Christ appeared to anyone other than his own followers, those who had already believed and put their faith in him after his resurrection. Jesus was around for 40 days after he was risen from the dead. And I have to wonder why he didn't stand on top of the pinnacle of the temple and show himself to everyone and say, hey guys, look at me, I'm alive, I I beat death, I'm victorious. Why did he not do that? Jesus could have gone to the religious leaders and just rubbed their noses in it, couldn't he? He rose from the dead. He could have gone to Caiaphas, the high priest, and, and, and shown, you thought you killed me, but you're wrong. He really could have made a spectacle, but he didn't. And those who saw him after the resurrection was a very exclusive club, a small group of people considering. So let me ask you this. Do you suppose that there is perhaps some theology wrapped up in the fact that he only appeared to his followers in that span of time? Do you suppose that perhaps God had a purpose or a divine plan in how and to whom he revealed himself at that time after his resurrection? Because he really could have blown the lid off the whole thing, made a a spectacle of the rulers that crucified him. He could have even toppled Rome at that time if he wanted to. Right then and there, he could have ushered in his kingdom. Interesting, if that would have happened then, you or I would have never known the gospel. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Why is it so difficult for us to believe that in eternity past, God purposed to do his work with humankind and to unfold his will within the the construct of time and space and matter? Because you see, he transcends all of that. Why is it so hard for us to believe And that as time unfolds, there are those who are in fact His, yet to be born, yet to hear the gospel, purposed to be Christ's inheritance in eternity future. Could it be that an all-powerful, all-knowing God has a purpose and a plan? Could it be that His plan is for His own pleasure and for His own glory and not yours and mine? That perhaps his plan transcends our ability to understand or fathom in our finite minds. Turn to Psalm 139, verse 2, real quick. Psalm 139, verse 2. Psalm 139, 2. We're going to go through verse 6 here. I'm just going to read through it. You know, speaking of God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, 
You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. We just need to trust God. It's a wonderful truth that he loves us and calls us by name. Real quick, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to follow this, this line of um, scripture here. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. I'm going to read a portion here of scripture. Just think about what I've been talking about and and think through this. Ponder this in your hearts and minds this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have a redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of His grace, which He caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Him. For an administration of the fullness of the times. See, it's going somewhere. The times are going somewhere. He's got a plan. It's unfolding just as He wills. Trying to find where I was. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. To the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory in Him. You also, after listening to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Let me tell you something. When God seals you, you cannot be unsealed. If God does it, it can't be undone. Amen? That's an incredible peace that you can have knowing that when God works on your behalf and you are sealed in Christ, there's nothing that can take you out of the Father's hand. He says, he's, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, verse 14, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a promise saying to us that one day you're going to get all of the blessings. You're going to get the glorification. You're going to get everything that comes along with it. Right now you get spiritual blessings, but the best is yet to come. Because he says, under the redemption of God's own possession, and then again, to the praise of His glory. It's all about Him. 
And I realize that some of these things are difficult to grapple with and understand, but Scripture tells us it's difficult to understand, but it's too wonderful and too high for us to truly attain an understanding of it. And so therefore, he simply asks us to have faith in him and put our faith in what he said in his word and not reject him in that way. We can't put ourselves in the place of God and the clay question the potter. The creation question the creator. He is God. He is sovereign. He is good. He is just. He's always righteous and he's perfect in everything he does. We can just trust that. Amen? So I'm throwing this out there this morning because Perhaps it was not in God's timing or plan at that time to reveal himself in such an obvious way that Israel would believe at that time. Paul says in Romans 11 that by Israel's rejection of Christ, their transgression, the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, and that's how you and I can be saved. If Israel hadn't rejected Christ, you and I would have been lost had we ever existed in the first place. Their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, Paul says. If they had not rejected Jesus, the nations would have remained lost in their sins. And again, that includes you and I. So he goes on to say, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. I'm speaking about Romans 11. The kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. The fact that God allowed Israel to reject him was his love and mercy and kindness shown towards you and I. That one day we were yet to be born and he wanted to call us by name and set us aside for eternity with him. How incredible. He purposed at that time that they reject him so that the gospel could go before the world. So here, Paul is laying out God's divine plan. God's not flying by the seat of his pants. God's not running around frantic in heaven trying to figure out how he's going to fix everything that we've messed up. I don't know how to put this to you, but an omniscient God means an all-knowing God. It means he knows everything that's ever going to happen already. So nothing comes to a surprise to him, okay? He's not scratching his head wondering what he's going to do or running around freaking out. That's not who our God is. He already knows what's going to happen. He says his purpose will be accomplished, and it's going to culminate in this glorious thing known as the resurrection. Let's continue verse 7. Paul continues to list this very specific, exclusive group of believers, those who saw Christ. After his resurrection, verse 7, after that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And remember that foundation that we talked about being laid, the apostles and the prophets. We discussed that last week. Verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So could it be that just as God was as much in control of Saul's actions while he was Saul, before his conversion, God was just as in, in control of Saul's actions before his conversion as he was Paul's actions after his conversion in an act of divine allowance. 
Jesus said, go into all the world. And guess what the church was doing shortly following his, his ascension? They were hanging out around Jerusalem waiting for him to come back. And so what did God do? He appointed this man, Saul, to persecute the Christians and scatter them from Jerusalem. He told them to go out and preach and teach the gospel and make disciples, and they weren't doing it. So he used Saul. He chose this Pharisee who had a hand in the murder of the Lord's own man, Stephen. He literally held their cloaks while they murdered Stephen and stoned him to death. That's Saul. And that's the guy who had letters and and went out, was on the road to Damascus to go find Christians and persecute them and likely put some to death. But God used Saul then to persecute his people, as I said, and scattering them. We know this as a section called the diaspora or diaspora. And and think of spores in a mushroom. If you you like kick a mushroom and these spores kind of go out in a circle and then they create new mushrooms in a circle around. You guys ever seen those circles of mushrooms? That's the picture here that, that he scattered them out. Now there was the diaspora before in the Old Testament and the very di- various different ones, but the di- diaspora in this case was Paul persecuting the Christians and then them moving outside of the land of Israel. And, and in doing that, God used him before his conversion to spread the gospel to other nations. God's so cool. Amen? Well, that's an understatement. But I mean, his plan is just cool. It's just awesome. However, then, in an act of God's divine decree, Christ chooses Saul and dramatically transforms him. He is, in fact, the most influential evangelist, missionary, and church planter the world has ever known. We see here that he's very careful to give God the glory. Verse 10b, His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preached to you, and so you believed. Without a doubt, the preaching in the early church proclaimed the gospel, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether it was one of the apostles, a missionary, an evangelist, through the annals of time, the courageous men and women who hold fast to the word and proclaim it as good news, the power of the gospel proclaims Christ crucified, Christ buried, and most importantly, it all hinges on the truth of His resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, we're not pretending here this morning. This is the truth. We, plagued by our love for darkness, have no hope on our own. And without Christ, we are spiritually dead. We are hopeless. One single sin that you have committed is an infinite offense to a holy, infinite God. In your fallen state... If you were to die right now, you could not abide His presence. You could not go to heaven and abide the presence, the glory of God. In fact, we're all destined, the Bible says, for eternity in hell because of our sin, and we deserve His eternal wrath. There has to be an infinite consequence for an infinite affront or sin against a holy God. Do you understand? But thank God that Jesus Christ, His Son, came as a light into this cursed world and He lived, He lived a perfect life. A life that you have not lived nor could not live as hard as you've tried. 
And then the Bible says that Christ gave Himself a ransom for your sin. He paid for your infinite offense. He took the wrath of His own Father upon Himself for your behalf. The Bible says that it pleased the Father to crush His own Son. Why? Because He could reconcile you and I to the Father. The Bible says they took Him down from the cruel cross and they laid His lifeless body in the grave. But three days later, He arose victorious over sin and death. He's the victor over sin and death. He said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember, there's no other way to the Father except through Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. And the one that believes in me will live even though he dies. He's still going to live eternally in the presence of God the Father and in the presence of Christ. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome. Thank you.